0: This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Madhumita Santana. We want to remind you that this program broadcasts from the Raipa lands of the Tiwa people. Tonight, we bring you a presentation by Janine Jackson, the program director of FAIR, She also hosts and produces Counterspin. She shares information on myths and disinformation in media and technology, and how to recognize inequities in our current media. This presentation on fairness and analysis in the media was virtually given to the 2022 Leaders for Change Fellows. This fellowship is a group of 30 youth members between the ages of 14 to 24 who represent communities and pueblos from across New Mexico. Now, Leaders for Change fellow Antonio Cruz and GJ member Gianna Ramirez will introduce Janine Jackson.
1: Hello, my name is Gianna Ramirez. I am 16 years old and my pronouns are she, her, hers. I identify as Nuevo Mexicana Chicana, and I'm also second generation Mexican-American. I am currently on stolen indigenous Tiwa land here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I'm going to be a junior at Eldorado High School here in Albuquerque. Um, We are so excited to have you here. I'm with Generation Justice, and I've been with GJ for about three years now. Um, So I'm super excited to finally get to meet you as we have looked at Counterspin and FAIR before, and so I'm going to go ahead and give a little bit of background on FAIR and Counterspin. FAIR, the National Media Watch Group, has been offering well-documented criticism of media bias and censorship since 1986. They work to invigorate the First Amendment by advocating for greater diversity in the press and by scrutinizing media practices that marginalize public interest, minority dissenting viewpoints. As an anti-censorship organization, they expose neglected news stories and defend working journalists as they are muzzled. As a progressive group, FAIR believes that structural reform is ultimately needed to break up the dominant media conglomerates, establish independent public broadcasting, and promote strong nonprofit sources of information. Uniquely, FAIR works with both activists and journalists. They maintain a regular dialogue with reporters at news outlets across the country, providing constructive critiques when called for and applauding exceptional hard-hitting journalism. They also encourage the public to contact media with their concerns to become media activists rather than passive consumers of news. Counterspin is FAIR's weekly radio show, produced and hosted by Jean Jackson. It's heard on more than 160 non-commercial stations across the United States and Canada. Counterspin provides a critical examination of the major stories every week and exposes what corporate media might have missed in their own coverage. Counterspin highlights censored stories and exposes biased and inaccurate coverage while examining the power of corporate influence and sexism, racism, and homophobia in the news. Thank you so much for being here with us, Janine. I will pass it to Tony. Thank you.
2: Uh, My name is uh, Antonio, but they call me Tony, and um, I'm from Las Cruces, New Mexico. I'm with Generation Justice, but I'm also with uh, Learning Action Buffet or The Lab, and I'm a radio DJ. I'm identify as he they I am Hispanic Mexican American and that's pretty much who I am but uh, Janine Jackson is FAIR's program director and producer slash host of FAIR's syndicated weekly radio show Counterspin she contributes frequently to FAIR's newsletter extra and co-edited the FAIR reader an extra review of press and politics in the 90s. She has appeared on ABC's Nightline and CNN Headline News, among other outlets, and has testified to the Senate Communications Subcommittee on budget reauthorization for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Her articles have appeared in various publications, including in These Times and the UAW Solidarity, and in books, including Civil Rights Since 1787, and Stop the Next War Now, Effective Responses to Violence and Terrorism. Jackson is a graduate of Sarah Lawrence College and has a master's in sociology from the new school for social
3: research, and I'd like to welcome you to Generation Justice. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I'm very, very happy to be with you. Well, I hardly feel, um, I feel I can start halfway through because those introductions are so, um. Descriptive, you know, I, I do produce a weekly radio show uh, for FAIR, the media watch group. So, yes, I mean, one thing I do want to note is that FAIR is a media watch group and that when when FAIR started in 1986, um, before all of you were born. Um, it was a different atmosphere. Uh, news media were considered neutral. Um, and. Certainly, it was an understanding that you as a media consumer had no standing to talk back to the news media. You were simply to accept it as a gift that corporate America was giving you. And that was that. And that was that, you know, so a lot has changed in terms of not so much what news media do, but the way we respond to it. And a lot of what FAIR does is really simp- is, is public education work and not so much trying to change what news media do, but really trying to change the way we understand it and the way that we react to it. What, what FAIR does and what I do with Counterspin, I started to say I look for stories uh, that represent media problems, but I don't really have to look for them. They, they fall in my lap. Um, but I try to find fairs overarching thing, if I could boil it down, is to point to the conflicts between journalism as a public service and media as a profit-driven entity. So you may not know that at a time in history, we were deciding how we would fund, how we would resource the information that we need to to live, you know, and a decision, a historical decision was made that in this country, our news media, our journalism would be funded by private profit-driven corporations and would be sponsored by corporations. It didn't have to be that way. Other countries don't do it that way, but that was the decision that was made here, a historical decision, so that we now have our media our newspapers and radio outlets and television owned by very very powerful profitable corporations who are driven primarily by uh, the desire to make money that's the bottom line and what we do every day is say that decisions are made that make sense as business decisions that do not make sense as journalistic decisions and that, that we all suffer for that so what i do concretely is look at the news media and see stories that represent media problems and then look for voices that can, can speak to those problems, that can address a, both the specific issue, fill in the blanks, correct errors, and also point to alternative views. That's what I'm looking for in a, in a guest. Um, I want to give one example of a show that I did recently that I that I just loved and it kind of covers a number of these points. And that was an interview I did with Helen Zia in which she was talking about uh, the legacy of Vincent Chin. Vincent Chin was a Chinese American man who was uh, murdered in Detroit in 1982. He was beaten to death by two white auto workers who said that he was responsible for them losing their jobs. Now at the time news media were, there was a big furor about Japan stealing the auto industry from the United States. Chin was Chinese-American. You and I know that that didn't matter in this instance. There's a bar fight and he is killed. The, The two men who killed him received only fines and misdemeanors. And the reason for that was the judge said they weren't the kind of people you put in jail, Okay. so news media didn't care about this story they didn't care about the murder they didn't care about the injustice of the that came after it until activists started talking about it until and in fact many people credit the vincent chin murder with really sparking the asian american activism movement in this country and helen zia is is at the center of that Um, so she was able to explain first of all to tell that story to talk about the role of activism in drawing media attention to that story, and then also to point to all of the underlying issues in terms of Asian-American bias in the news media and the way that played a role in the way they covered this story. But then it didn't stop there with what happened and what news media did wrong, because I actually was having her on because... Um, She was working on a project on Vincent Chin's Remembrance and Rededication, which was a week of activism of talks and events and things that were designed to call attention both to the murder and to the failure of justice that followed it, but also to talk about the activism that had grown from it um, and the way that it had incorporated other movements and worked across movements and become something really powerful. So it was very important to her that it not be a sad story about Chin's murder, but a story about how a community was able to take something horrible and and, and use it to to move ourselves forward. So for me, it was an example of forgotten history and an example of um, voices that we don't often see in the news media that are marginalized. And... An opportunity to call out media for the way they behaved at the time, you know, and, and and all of it in 15 minutes. So that to me was a terrific example of what Counterspin is trying to do every week um, and, and what FAIR does. Um, I want to give one, a couple quick examples, you know, when people say, well, how do you know there's a conflict or how do you illustrate a conflict between journalism and corporate media? All I have to do is say, the head of CBS, Les Moonves, said to a group of stockholders, Donald Trump may be bad for the country, but he's damn good for CBS. So really, that's all, you know, first of all, he's the head of CBS. Second of all, he's not now, he was then. Second of all, he's speaking in public. This isn't him late night whispering in a friend's ear. He's speaking in public before a group of people now, the group of people he's talking to are stockholders in CBS. And so he is saying to them, yes, you can, you'll can. you be seeing horrible things. Donald Trump is a nasty man, but it's good for us because we're getting lots of eyes on the set, and that means we can charge advertisers more, and so on. This is a conflict. You know, um, the fact that uh, media outlet CNN, I believe, aired footage of an empty podium where Donald Trump was scheduled to speak at a time at which Bernie Sanders was speaking, right? And I think at another time when Hillary Clinton was speaking, they aired instead an empty podium because they knew that just the, even for people who hated Trump, just saying the name got them to watch. And that's what they care about, right? Is people watching. I want to say also, it's not quite as simple as that. And I want to drop this here because I never want to forget it. I think people do think, oh, yes, media owners just want eyes on the set. They just want people to watch. But you have to remember that they don't want everybody to watch. Who they want to watch is the audience that their sponsors want to speak to. And that's not everybody. And that's why research has shown uh, that, and this is in radio, research showed by the FCC, in fact, that sponsors were... had argued that they needed to pay less or not advertise at all on stations that reached primarily black and Latino audiences. And the reasons for that, well, one sponsor, Ivory Soap, said they didn't want to advertise on the Latinx uh, station because, as they put it, Hispanics don't bathe as often. Okay, at one point, one sponsor said, we just don't want them in our store. So, when people say it's not black and white, it's green, it is still very much black and white. And you have to remember that even though, and even I, when I say it very crudely, I say, well, they just want eyes on the set, they just want people watching. It's not exactly that. Um, and then I was asked to talk about different kinds of structures, media structures. And that is the key, you know, um, we believe, because part of what FAIR does. Is to talk about the influence of that ownership structure on the content. Not always a conflict of interest, but it influences the content all the time, right? So here's a little story. There's a, a TV program airs about drones, right? And it shows drones in a very positive light. Um, they're they're precise. They're they're cutting edge. Um, they don't harm civilians, and and also aren't they neat? You know, zoom, zoom, zoom. So you watch this show, and then at the end, you find out that the show is sponsored by Lockheed Martin, a weapons manufacturer. Now, I think a number of people would think uh, that's a conflict. You know, this is very cheerleading for drones, and then it turns out it's sponsored by a weapons company. And you absolutely should think that, and that's absolutely true. But what we at FAIR try to do is then pull you back a little bit and think, also, a lot of other news programs are, are sponsored by weapons manufacturers. Even if they aren't as direct a conflict as with the drones, you still have to think, what is the influence? You know, what it, You know, these people, the sponsors sign the checks, right? So you can't pretend they don't have an influence. What does it mean that so many of our news programs are sponsored by weapons manufacturers, are sponsored by insurance companies, you know, um, aren't sponsored, are sponsored by you know just overwhelmingly powerful profit-driven corporations how does that influence the content that's what we want people to be thinking about as they consume the news why don't i have a news show that's sponsored by peace organizations you know why 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 doesn't that exist um you can turn the dial all you want and there are kinds of content that you will just never find so moving into sort of the another piece of how many different sorts of media there are what I want to say is that drone show sponsored by Lockheed Martin was on PBS it was on public broadcasting and public broadcasting is an interesting story in the sense that after news media had started and we'd made this decision that it would be corporate sponsored and corporate owned there was a recognition that that would leave out certain points of view And so in the late 60s, public television, the Public Television Act happened, and the language of it is beautiful. It talks about how we need a space to um, create a space for voices that would otherwise be unheard, a place that would be a forum for controversy and debate. And there was explicit recognition that there are some perspectives that commercial corporate news media don't want to air, and that... The public had a right to them and there ought to be a space for them. That was the goal of public broadcasting, public television and radio. It was very quickly trounced by Richard Nixon, who determined that public television would not be, would have to go to Congress every year to get its funding. And I would have to say to obviously very partisan and whatever Congress people, you should give us more, more money. Again, this is not how other countries do it this is how we determined we would do it in this country. So almost out of the gate, public television and public radio had to go to the same corporate sponsors to, sport, to sponsor their programs, to fund their programs, um, as, as everybody else. So this space that was meant to be free of precisely that kind of conflict with Lockheed Martin and the drones is instead just a, a more highfalutin forum you know, for the, for the same kinds of, of conflicts. And that's why when we talk about structure, people may say, well, we can have corporate outlets, but we should also have some state-sponsored or public outlets. And I think that's true, but the public outlets have to be genuinely public um, and genuinely funded um, fully um, by the public as other countries do or by the state. And then there's a range of what we call independent media or what is referred to as independent media. And what I want to say about that is independent media does not mean, to me, does not mean progressive media or diverse media. Independence means independence of power. It means can this outlet say things and show things that powerful people don't want shown? That's what independence means. And so, yes, we have labor publications and religious publications and environmental publications every outlet is going to be answerable to someone, you know, you may read a labor paper that is, that is very comfortable being critical of, of, of profiting companies that is very comfortable, um, complaining about trade policy. You just can't criticize the union. So any kind of structure, you have to be looking at what is the bottom line, who are the reporters answerable to, right? Right. And so what some folks think is that we ought to have a mixed landscape, recognizing the way that structure influences content, maybe we should have a mixed landscape as some other countries do, where some is private, some is public, some is, um, you know, from various public interest organizations, as long as there is some kind of a mix. We don't have that in this country now. And I will add that years ago, I've been doing this a long time, years ago after I Finished a spiel. People would say, "But what about the internet?" You know. So of course, it's important to remember, and we just looked at this recently. A, 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 a large number of the most, pop- the, or the most popular sites on the internet are connected to existing corporate media outlets. Right. It doesn't mean though that there aren't a wide range that social media don't make possible exposure and communication with a much wider range of views and perspectives than we had before. Um, I don't want to say it's just more of the same because it isn't. It has made a categorical difference in our ability to both be critical of the mainstream news, the big news media, and to talk around them. And those things are, are very important. And that's why we really do have to monitor these fights over Twitter and Facebook and these other, um, you know, social media tools that we use to organize, that we use to talk to one another, to guard against their being simply 100% swallowed up into that same, you know, sphere that we have seen. And we have seen we are seeing the kind of implosion of this corporate journalism model. Mass layoffs of journalists, incredible concentration and the loss of outlets, loss of local media in particular. Um, a number of folks, are they're just in flyover, you know, you can go to read something from the big city over here and you can read something from the big city over there, but there's nothing for you. That is all the result of that conflict. It's all the result of the people who own our media seeing them primarily as money makers and without a concern, really, um, for the way they're serving the public. And I'll say just one thing, a final thing about the structure that's good, um, which is that along with that, those layoffs, which, as you know, have been going on, the concentration of news media, the loss of media outlets, that's been going on for some time. And so for a time, there's been a movement to you know, we need the state to to subsidize um, these outlets. We need to lift, we need to create some new newspapers. We need to give more money to the existing newspapers so that they can hire journalists. I see something, there's something much more interesting than that going on. And that is, I'll give one example, which is in New Jersey. And it's something called the Civic Information Consortium. And what this is, is that in New Jersey, they... They auctioned off some spectrum. As you know, the public airwaves are a public resource. And so when they auctioned off some of the spectrum for, I don't know, cell phones or something, a, a tremendous amount of money came back to the state from this sale. And people were saying, oh, yeah, you should use it to, to buck up the newspaper. You should use it to, to give to that to that radio station, you know, so that they can do better and maybe hire a local reporter. And what a consortium of activists and organizations said is, no, we don't want to subsidize existing media. And what I love about it is they changed the whole frame from saying we need to subsidize our journalism to saying we need to meet our community's information needs. They don't even use the word media necessarily in that conversation. They've, they've shifted the ground so that what you're starting with is the community and all of the voices in the community and what do they need from news media? What do they need from uh, information resources? And so it's a work in progress, but first of all, they want it, they got the money, um, and they're trying to figure out ways to do it. There is a, There are foreign language you know, radio stations that are being that are being started that are hyper local you know there are, there are local uh, papers that are starting that are community driven there's also education training of reporters you know going on and all of this is seen as part of meeting a community's information needs so i'm really excited that we kind of have moved off the dime of something that was never true which was News media used to be unbiased and great, and, and everyone is, was included, and and then things got bad. That was never the case. Um, you know, people say, "Oh, and now there's right wing media and left wing media, and they never talk to one another, and they're having two siloed conversations." And isn't that terrible? Because we used to all be in one conversation. No, we were never all in one conversation, right? There were never any halcyon days of of news media in that sense. So this is a way of saying we're not going to look backward and try to buck up the the media that have done us so much harm. We're in fact going to start with ourselves and what we need to be able to communicate to one another. And I just see that reframing as something very exciting. And um, it also can be replicated around the country. And that's kind of a, a, a big project that I'm starting to work on. And it's focused over entirely on local journalism. Right. And um, the big guys can take care of themselves. Local journalism, I think, is is the most heartening place to look right now. Community journalism and communities talking to one another.
0: You're listening to Generation Justice, broadcasting on 89.9 KUNM-FM. We bring you a presentation from Janine Jackson, host and producer of the weekly radio show, Counterspin. Janine frequently writes for Extra, The Fair Newsletter, and also serves as a co-editor for The Fair Reader. Now back to the presentation.
3: And then I was also asked about disinformation, which is something we're hearing about a lot. As we know, disinformation is false information that's intended to deceive. Sometimes it's distinguished from misinformation, which is something that just accidentally is wrong, you know, but is not known to be wrong. Disinformation is false information that is intended to deceive. And we often think about, or people often talk about Big examples, you know, um, the United States in the Vietnam War, there was an incident called the Gulf of Tonkin, in which the US said that they had been uh, one of their warships had been attacked by the North by the North Vietnamese, it was just made up, it didn't happen. And yet it led to an incredible escalation of the war. Uh, It was reported as true, as having happened. And it led to a tremendous escalation of the Vietnam War and the deaths of tens of thousands of people. And it was a wholly manufactured incident. And it was uh, the U.S. and Lyndon Johnson claimed that their ship had been doing just routine maneuvers and then was attacked. In fact, their ship was spying and it wasn't attacked. So every piece of it was wrong. But by the time that was recognized, it was too late. So now you'll hear Gulf of Tonkin as an example of something where a big lie was told it had its devastating impact and then later there was a kind of oh weren't we all just kind of mistaken about that which you know I'm sure you can think of other recent examples so people think of big things like Donald Trump claiming that anti-malarial drugs will will cure COVID right that's disinformation. It's known to be false. Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. At the time, it was known to be false, but it was still propagated as a story, and it still had the real-world effect that it had, which was devastating. What I want to say is that disinformation does not need to be that specific to an incident you know, or to a statement. I believe that entire frames can be disinforming. So for example, for many years, we had from major elite news media, a storyline that said in our elections, we have a problem with voter fraud. And we also have a problem with voter suppression. Republicans are very concerned about voter fraud and Democrats or liberals are very concerned about voter suppression. And that was the story. Well, as you and I know, there are vanishingly few examples of election fraud, voting fraud. It just doesn't happen. It's a story that Republicans wanted to put forward in order to put through all of their voter suppression laws. But media, for their own reasons, which I can talk about, were very invested in saying, they're saying this, they're saying this. Maybe there's some of both. Maybe the truth is in between. No, the truth is not in between. The truth is there is voter suppression and there is not voter fraud. That to me, and this is every story about elections over years and years and years. It's just a frame, but it's disinformation. It's disinformation. When I read a story that talks about a racist incident or an incident of white supremacist violence, and it says uh, people of color oppose this, I think, you know, I know plenty of white people who oppose racism. And if every time you talk about racism, you say Black people are against it, that's disinformation. That's disinformation. That's telling us an untrue thing about who holds what point of view, about how many people support the particular vision that we have, and and how much power we have. To me, it's disinformation. So I call them that because I know that the media writing them know that they're untrue, and they still continue to do it. We know this with the New York Times, for example, used to repeatedly say that Saddam Hussein had kicked out weapons inspectors before, they kicked them out of the country. Do a Google search, kicked out weapons inspectors, you'll find a ton of them. That was known at the time to be false. You know, the inspectors were removed by the United States because the United States knew we were about to go to war. They were not kicked out by Saddam Hussein. Now. The New York times, we, they write it, we write to them and say, that's wrong. They run a correction and then they do it again. So once an outlet does again, a story that they've co- done a correction for, you know, repeats a fact that they've done a correction st- for, then I know it's disinformation. I know they know what they're doing. And I'll just say one final thing about why they do it. News meet corporate elite However, you want to call it news media are very invested in presenting themselves as neutral and presenting themselves as moderate as centrist and that is supposedly where all the wisdom lies and because they're so invested in that view they always have to be between what they deem the right and the left or democrats or liberals or you know um conservatives and liberals democrats and republicans news media are they're the calmer head that's in between they don't fall for any of these storylines so they're very invested in equating um sort of left positions and right-wing positions the right caught on to that long ago and they knew that they could keep staking out weirder and weirder and more extreme positions and because of their deep investment in being in the middle news media would turn, you know, we call it triangulation, would turn to, first of all, normalize that extreme view that's just been expressed by by talking about it, you know, um, and then by positioning themselves somewhere in between. The right has learned that they can shift the whole conversation in their direction because news media will follow them. And that has to do with who owns it and who sponsors it and the fact that they will get in trouble for being unfair to right-wingers in a way that they will never get heat from their owners or their sponsors from being unfair to people on the more left side of the spectrum. And the, the right knows this, and so they, they play them like a violin. And we have seen this. We see it in the, in the voter fraud story in which, you know, journalists are typing out something that they know isn't really happening. It's that investment in appearing neutral in and in appearing unbiased that elite media have that leads them to such distortions, you know, um, and also what I call the top-down bias, you know, which is, it's not, I talk a lot about left and right, but a lot of media's bias is what I call top-down in other words, journalists have a definition of news which says that news is what powerful people say and do. And if that's your definition of news, you're going you're gonna to miss you know, pretty much everything because you're not having a dialogue about power. You're simply holding a microphone up to the powerful. And then to the extent that critical views are included, as we all know, the story starts with a statement from the powerful person, and then at the end, you might see a person on the street or, you know, an, another, you know, an individual saying, "Oh, but we disagree." Um, that framing, that ordering of those voices, tells you what voice is the authority and what voice is just a critic, an outsider, you know, and 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 is more marginal. Um, so that top-down bias. You'll see a story about Walmart. Maybe it's even a hard-hitting story about, you know, how they underpay their workers and working conditions, and how, you know, their workers still rely on public assistance, and how they treat, uh, you know, sweatshops abroad. It might even be a very critical story. And then it, at the end, it'll say, uh, "Spokespeople from Walmart declined to speak with us," and that's it. You know, they don't have to speak. They don't have to come on and explain themselves. They don't have to answer questions because the journalist has said. I'm the questioner here. I'm going to represent the public here. And, you know, I couldn't get Walmart on the phone. So, you know, you just have to believe what I said. I believe that truly independent journalism would in, would be interrogating that refu- don't Speak to us crowd. They refuse to consent to speak to us crowd. Follow them. Ask them. Journalists can can dig very hard when they want to, but when it comes to extremely powerful views, some of whom are sponsors, some of whom are on their board, it doesn't happen. So it it all is, I've said the word structure about a thousand times. It's about who owns it. It's about who owns it and who signs the checks. And there are virtually every question that is important to us that is emergent today is being underserved uh, by elite media, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's um, voter suppression, whether it's climate disruption, climate disruption, a great example, you're going to have, you're going to be sponsored by oil oil companies and fossil fuel companies, and they're going to be all in your board. And we're, how are you going to be an outlet that is going to do what we need done in terms of having the dialogue on climate disruption? you know, if you're going to be afraid to talk to the head of Exxon, how are we power, whatever, I'm so old, but you know, if you're afraid to interrogate these people, how are we ever going to get the information that we know we need in order to make the changes that we need to make? So many journalists are brave. Many journalists are curious and critical, but they like any worker, they work in an environment. They work in a climate. And it's a climate that rewards some kinds of behavior and punishes other kinds of behavior. So as a working journalist, you might not be told, oh, we're not going to do that story um, about the failure at the hospital because, you know, the, that hospital, we're, they're on our board and we're on their board and, you know, we have lunch together. We can't, we can't do this story. They're not going to tell you that. They're going to say, you know that's not really for us. That That's not really a sexy enough story. Maybe, maybe go back and try to get some more information on that. That's the kind of thing that happens that, that turns journalists off pursuing stories that they know that are critical. And that's why journalists, some of them are not being laid off. They're leaving. They're leaving elite media because they know it's not rising to the occasion. So that's why I'm excited that not just that Individual journalists are trying to cobble together their own web page that's never going to make them any money, but at least they get to say what they want to say. I think we have to address it more socially, and that's why I'm I'm interested in these this civic information consortium and that kind of model that starts with community and starts with the community's needs, and and tries to grow media from that. Um, while I support all of the individual folks who are doing their Substack and they're doing really great stuff, you know, um, that information needs to get out there. And I'm glad it's being done, but it's not sustainable as a model for journalism um, in a society with, as I say, democratic aspirations. You know, people often ask, what can I do? And when I look at a group like this, I think you're, al- you're already doing it. You know, you're, you're already doing it. You're already informing yourselves independently. You're already talking to one another around media. I know you're already not believing everything you read, which is where we have to start with a lot of folks. You know, a lot of folks who who grew up really believing that they can turn on the nightly news and in a half an hour get everything they need to know about what happened, who matters. You know, if they're not on the show, they didn't matter. Their story isn't important. A lot of folks have 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 come up with that. Um, And I think that younger folks today just, you didn't start from that. That's not, that's not where you begin that you automatically trust whatever's on the television. But I do think it means that the critical thinking that you're learning and the critical skills that you're learning are in very, very important. Sometimes things are, are hidden. You know, sometimes you have to, to do digging to find about conflicts of interest, for example, or you know, a quick example from that's recent. this this Supreme Court ruling, I don't know if you heard about it, the Supreme Court, because they've been doing they've been so busy. you may have missed um, the Bremerton versus Kennedy, where they decided that this football coach, high school football coach in in Washington, yes, he can um, pray with his students. and um, you know, and that and that's okay. And the court's ruling and the media coverage of the court ruling, said that this football coach wanted to be able to have short personal private prayers and that the school had fired him for that and therefore he was oppressed. It's completely false. It's not a little bit false. It's big false. Um, This coach wasn't having private personal prayers. He was gathering the team around him on the field and and praying and calling on testimony for them to pray. And it goes without saying, I'm talking about Christian prayer here. And he was not fired. In fact, the school worked with him to try to accommodate him. They knew it was a messy thing and they tried to accommodate him in whatever way they could. And he, you know, didn't he didn't respond. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. And well, it paid off, didn't it? But it paid off with a big lie, with a big lie. Um, that this was about private, personal prayer and that he was being somehow oppressed. Anybody who has played a sport knows that if the coach is calling on you to come into the circle and we're all doing something, it's extremely difficult to say, oh, no, you know, I don't, I don't want to. You know, we all know how difficult that is in context. And the court just pretended it, that it wasn't, that it isn't, that anybody who wanted to opt out could opt out. And news media presented it that way. They presented not just, they said, this court ruling has come out and people feel differently about it. Some people think this, some people think that. But what they largely failed to do was say the whole ruling itself is based on falsehood. Falsehood that had, by the way, been reported. I found a reporter in Seattle who had written about, in obviously searchable stories, how not only was this not about personal prayer, but about coercing coercing student athletes um, to get in line with this Christian, you know, cheerleading, um, the coach himself had said, had said on the record that he got his idea from watching some movie about how some football coach, his team was losing, but then they all found God and then they started winning. You know, he said it. He said it out loud, you know, that it was about getting the whole team to agree to this Christian little, and the court simply said, "That's not what's going on." So that, to me, is an example where media will give you the sense that they're telling you two sides of something. This ruling has happened, and people feel various kinds of ways about it. And we're going to quote all kinds of people. We might even quote the same amount of people who were for it and who were against it, like it's balance. It's not balanced when the story is premised on a lie. So that's the type of thing where it's, so what I did, I, I read the ruling and I just thought, you know, I'm pretty sure that's crap. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't know how, but, um, and then I did some research. And then I thought, you know, who knows sports and politics and media? Dave Zirin. You know, I know this guy, Dave Zirin. He writes about sports and news, but he also writes very much about the intersection of sports and politics. And I thought, I bet he's written something about this. And he had, he, he absolutely had. So he was a Counterspin guest. So I had him come on, say what was wrong about the story, what was wrong about the coverage, get a little Brittany Griner in there at the end. You know, we were able to have an illuminating conversation in which listeners could find out uh, something about the ruling itself, but also something about media workings, the way media behave that drove them to tell that story in that way. So that was another example for me of, I see a story in the paper, I know something's wrong with it, I do some digging, but I don't know everything that's wrong with it, I just Sense that something's wrong with it. And then I look to my resources or I find new resources to get them to tell me and to tell listeners what exactly is going on that's wrong here. So that's another example of like, that's a counterspin idea from start to finish. Media have written about the white Christian nationalist, first of all, takeover of the Supreme Court, you know, which we've seen. Um, and about the, the, the loss of legitimacy of the court itself as a result of that, you know, the, the understanding among the people that this is no longer this, you know, or to the extent that it was, this deliberative body, you know, that is above politics in that way or above the sort of short-term politics. Definitely, Christian nationalists, evangelicals had a goal, that goal with the court as they have that goal with all of our society. And a number of things that I have said have talked about the Roe v. Wade overturning This is not the end, you know. Again, storyline that we've heard would say these people, because of their religious beliefs, they want an end to abortion, and so now they've won. That's not it. They have a whole program, and the overturning of Roe is the beginning, and not the end of it. They are now in a position where they can drive through a tremendous amount of things, and we see our we have a Congress that won't even give itself the tools to fight. The judiciary can go rogue sometimes, and that's why the two other branches are supposed to be a check on it, right? It doesn't work that way, and we've seen that. And again, my prob- my big problem with media right now is their failure to rise to the occasion. There is hellish stuff happening here that is, that is different than what we've seen before, and it's galloping. And to come to that with your same I'll get a quote from a Republican and I'll get a quote from a Democrat. And that's my story, the end. It's beyond insufficient. It's malfeasance, right? I read a story the other day. It was about some Congress member not getting a subsidy. And then in a parentheses, it said, and this is opposed by, it was about more drilling, you know, this is opposed by uh, Democrats and environmentalists who say it's going to contribute to climate disruption in a parenthesis in the story you know we're talking about the destruction of you know humanity and it's a parenthesis. but what i want to say is that that was the new york times the new york times will have a story on climate disruption and it'll be a great and critical story but when i'm looking at this other story that's about dc politics then suddenly climate disruption is a concern of environmentalists and democrats and it's a parenthesis within a story about some sort of legislative thing that's going to happen, you know. So, and with even uh, Roe v. Wade, you know, there will be great stories about it. Isn't it terrible? First of all, those stories needed to happen ten years ago, you know. But also, and this is another media phenomenon, they will go back to the same people they talked to before, who either didn't see it coming or were, you know, don't, you know. Um, don't take it seriously enough, they'll go back to them and say, you know, what do you think now? Rather than talking to the people who've been raising the alarm for decades, you know, rather than change their source list, and that has to do with just their idea of legitimacy, who belongs in the conversation, you know? um, There was a great line years ago at USA Today that was talking about um, anti-trade activists, and it said, It was actually so long ago that it was about the World Trade Organization, and the the outlet said, it's it's not been a concern of the public, but it's organized protesters around the world. And I found that fascinating um, because, you know, you can be a a member of the public and that's fine, but if you get together with other people, because you're worried about something and go out and complain about it, then you become a protester. You're no longer a member of the public. Now you're a protester, and you're marginal. You're marginal. You're presented in this outlet as marginal. You know, as a, as a brick thrower. Who who are you going to take more seriously, the public or protesters? You know, and I just thought, wow, it, 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 you have to really read it at the level of the sentence. You know, that that parentheses in that in that story, and that public and protesters. NPR did a story a long time ago about protesting against an oil production center that was going to happen. And they said, this so-and-so, a government scientist, says that it's actually okay. So-and-so, an environmental advocate, is against it. And what was fascinating was the government scientist was totally in the pay of, of oil organizations, you know, and the activist was also a scientist. But NPR labeled them government scientist and activist. You as a listener, you hear that some kind of way. You hear that a certain way. They could have said a hack and a scientist, you know, those would have both been descriptive, or they could have said a scientist and another scientist. They could have told it in lots of different ways. That language is always meaningful because it's media telling you who matters, who's serious, who you should take seriously, and who, you know, we included them, but wink wink, we know that they're not really the, the the person who ought to set the stage there. So I think you're one hundred percent right about the direction of the court, and my big concern with media is that they are reporting it, but they are not they're not doing they're not reporting with the urgency. they're not doing the editorializing, they're not making the demands. I tell you when elite media thought that that um, public assistance needed to be shrunk, what they called welfare reform they were on that stuff every day they were on that every day in news reporting in editorials in op-eds they were invested in making that position and making it seem common sense and here's how it's going to be fine and you know here's who's not going to be hurt by it they know how to blanket cover a story with urgency when they want to and what i call what they're doing now i call narrating the nightmare just this is happening Isn't it terrible? But we are certainly not gonna change the way we do things in order to address it. And that to me is a structural failing. It's not about individual reporters being stupid or bad or lazy. It's about what these media outlets are set up to do and what they will not do. And what they won't do is entertain serious, sustained criticism of the current socioeconomic status quo no matter how bad it gets which just brings me back to i'm not saying don't read the new york times by all means read the new york times it's going to it's going to influence your world it's it's going to have an effect but you have to you have to read around it you have to read other things you have to have your brain full of questions as you read it and um, you have to recognize that there are some sources of information that just don't exist for us and we have to create them. Truthfully, I don't have anybody that I, I have lots of folks that I always read. It's, it's, a, it's a wide range of people that depends and resources that depends very much on what I'm thinking about. So I have a long list of bookmarks. You know, I read Sludge on climate things, you know, I have Sister Song on, you know, Black women's healthcare. I read, you know, I have a, a number of of things i read dave's Zirin on sports i read you know um what i do concretely is start with one story and then i kind of wormhole you know i might start with the washington post and it's about um, india and what's happening in india and then i think oh you know so i know what something's missing from here so let me find you know arun gupta who i read you know and on tricontinental and And I'll write some of these down. I should. I always should. I'll look, I'll follow, I'll look to them to see what they're saying. And then that might lead me to an Indian newspaper that I've never heard of, you know. But I go from one story to the other until I feel like I've got some kind of grip. Um, But I don't believe, I do believe that you have to bring the same questions to bear, whoever you are reading. Um, I read, for example, truth out and common dreams because they are aggregate news sites and have lots of different voices and will often lead me to another outlet. I read a lot of those, ag- I look at a lot of those aggregate news sources, but I don't take any one of those stories and think, I you know, I don't pick up the nation and think, oh, I everything in here is just the truth. You know, I, I bring the same questions no matter what I'm reading. You know, um, you bring your criteria and your standards and you read widely you read broadly it's specifically important that you do not rely on a single source of information and imagine that it's telling you everything that you that you need to know i, I really do read lots of stuff rather than reading any one thing religiously and sometimes you just wind up with a question you know sometimes you just, you just you come away you still have questions but you've certainly got different shades and angles on that story that you started with. Well, it really is who's in this story. I mean, FAIR does research along with the analysis and the radio, we do long-term studies and a lot of them are just source studies. Who gets to speak? Who is in this story speaking in their own voice as opposed to being paraphrased, as opposed to being totally absent? Who is in this story and who is not in this story and how is that who should be in this story and isn't um, i really think who's speaking who's not speaking is are the the key questions you know um, and just what how does this fit in the larger picture you know i'm reading this story about this woman who's a Nazi, but you know, she likes to knit. And um, she's also, you know, really interesting. You know, why is this story here? Why am I reading a positive story about a Nazi right now? You know, what, what, this is rubbing me weird. Why, why is this happening now? You know, um, why is this story here? Who is speaking in it? Who's not speaking in it? Um, What perspectives might have been included? And where can I find those perspectives? Uh, and when you do go to those perspectives you may find both information that's missing from that first story but you might even find an angle on that first story that's oh yes this is a point of view that we're always hearing and that we always have to correct you know um, so it's a, it also matters to look at reporters you know it matters to see who is the reporter what else if particularly if you're struck by a story being particularly bad or good to go back and look at what else that that reporter has done um, that can certainly be, be valuable as well. But the main questions have to do, and, and also, w- we talked a lot about language. You know, when you hear phrases like the public thinks, or you know, people believe, or black people think, or you know, those should set off buzzers for you. Anytime you hear points of views of entire communities sort of collapsed into a phrase, you should ask yourself. Is that really? They really only have one point of view and this is what it is. You know, what would have happened if they'd actually spoken to people in that community rather than simply characterizing their point of view? But it really all comes back down to who is getting to speak. And that's news reporting, of course. When you're reading an op-ed, you know, there's another set of questions, you know. Um, but what's missing? What's missing and why is it missing? I think, is what you should always be bringing to whatever kind of news media you're consuming, even if it's a, a post you know, from a friend of yours.
0: Thank you, Janine Jackson, for sharing your knowledge on media equity and myths and disinformation. I truly learned a lot about all of these important topics and about your incredible work in radio. Your work allows us to question our sources and evaluate its credibility. We hope you've enjoyed this hour of community action. We'd like to thank our presenter, Janine Jackson. Tonight's hour of radio was produced by Roberta Rael and Barbara Ramirez, with production assistance from Sunandita Santanam and myself, Madhumita Santanam. And thank you to our fellows, Gianna Ramirez and Antonio Cruz, for introducing our guest Janine Jackson. We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We cannot do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud, Apple, and Google Podcasts. We're also active on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and follow our playlists on Spotify. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Cone Alma Health Foundation, NMDOH Better Together, and, of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by POD. I'm Madhumita Santanam. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at seven o'clock. We'd like to remind you that as COVID-19 cases rise in New Mexico, please continue to protect yourself and others by wearing a mask, maintaining social distancing protocols, and getting vaccinated. If you or someone you know is in need of a COVID-19 vaccination, visit VaccineNM.org. That's VaccineNM.org. Have a great night, New Mexico, and stay safe.